0: Professor Jacob Shapiro of uh, Princeton University. Uh, Jake is a uh, distinguished uh, grad of uh, Michigan. We can welcome him uh, in the hiatus between when Notre Dame and Michigan play uh, football. If we were still on the schedule, I'm afraid we wouldn't be able to invite you here.
1: Well, you know, it's like my, my wife said this morning: um, Wolverines eat leprechauns for breakfast. So. <laughs>
0: They're a little gristly, but whatever. Yeah, they uh, go down easy. Yeah, whatever you like. Um, uh, after uh, being an undergraduate at uh, Michigan, he served in the Navy. Mm-hmm. Were you uh, a SWO? I was a SWO. You... Yep. Okay. Um, but he served in a different community, right? She served the uh, special boat uh, service. Who is this? You.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, so that was, I'm still a SWO, but yeah, I spent time at a special boat unit and and at I later in the reserves.
0: Yeah, okay. So, uh, he then went on to uh, uh, Stanford University where he got his uh, PhD um, and of course then uh, moved to Princeton. Uh, he's got an incredible number of uh, extracurricular activities. Uh, <laughs> the uh, co-director of the empirical studies Uh, a conflict uh, project, which he's going to talk about. He talks about in the uh, book manuscript, um, and uh, he'll undoubtedly talk more about it. Um, But as somebody who's trying to raise money for a uh, institute, it's your private sector activities that I'm also interested in. As president of Giant Oak, Inc, uh, I won't ask you during your talk. What that's about, but you can count on me uh, interrogating you uh, totally. over dinner. Um, he's the author of the uh, Terrorist Dilemma: uh, Managing Violent Covert Organizations, and co authors of Foundations of the Islamic State: Management, Money, uh, and Terror in Iraq. Please join me in welcoming Jake <laughs> Safira. Then, thanks.
1: cool. Thanks. Um, so, thanks, thanks, Mike, and thanks, everyone. So. Uh, So what I want to try and do today um, is talk about the big picture that's emerging uh, from a book, uh, Big Data, Small Wars, that uh, Ellie Berman, Joe Felter, and I have been working on for about the last year. And what we're trying to do in this book is something that I think is a little unusual uh, in the literature, is we're trying to say there's a theory of how a certain kind of conflict works that we've built up based on uh, our professional experiences before we were academics and talking to lots of people over the years and and reading about lots of conflicts and and spending time in various places doing research. And then in the testing of the theory, there's no like one big test. What the book does is it tries to pull together about a decade of research by ourselves and a whole bunch of other folks. And so what I'm going to try and do today is convey a little bit of the motivation for the book, uh, why we think it matters, a little bit of the theory. And then give you an example of like one piece of evidence, and then talk about kind of what that means for strategy. So um, you know it's a small group, so like for God's sake, please interrupt me, like as much as you can, because it's going to get really boring otherwise. Um, but but this is what I want to what I want to do today. Um, you know is what I what I just talked about, and um, so 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 what's the motivation for this? Uh, why why does the book matter? So. Um, if you think about the conflicts that, um, you know, the U.S. has engaged in and over the years and the conflicts that really motivate the policy discourse, a lot of them have been symmetric conflicts where you have relatively uh, peer competitors fighting against each other. And the amount of um, resources in terms of equipment, people, supplies that you can bring to bear on the battlefield or on various battlefields uh, in different locations – has really determined the outcome of the conflict. So there might be kind of like individual tactical engagements where there's some uncertainty about the outcome or even like engagements at the operational level, but ultimately like the thing is decided in large part by the ability to get more stuff to points in place in space and time. And so that's, you know, we open the book by talking about the experience of uh, the 1st Armored Division in in D-Day and subsequently moving across northern France. Um, a lot of the conflicts that the United States finds itself in basically since the end of the Vietnam War, and even the Vietnam War to a large extent, are they're just a different thing, right? They're, they're asymmetric conflicts where the outcome of any given combat engagement is rarely in doubt. The outcome of anything at like the operational level, the next level up, is like never in doubt. And the strategic outcome is in doubt not because the accumulation of um, uh, kind of small outcomes uh, doesn't go in the right direction, but because there's a whole other set of political things that are going on that are determining the strategic outcome. And in, in, these, in these asymmetric conflicts, what I'm going to argue today is um, there's a lot of evidence that there exists a common logic across these things, that there is a way to uh, bring violence down locally that's kind of known, and so the question is then, the strategic question is not how do you manage that part of uh, the effort, which is where the policy discourse is focused. The strategic questions are things I'm not really going to talk about at all today, which are about how do you turn those local successes into larger strategic victory. have today a lot to say about that because that's like the subject of the next set of research. but that's the, the motivation for the whole thing. So so why should you care um, about asymmetric conflict? So uh, what this graph is showing you is there there on the, on the right here for you guys or on the left is just the battle dates deaths from different kinds of conflict uh, going back to 1975. So this is just taking data from the uh, armed conflict data set. and um, what you'll notice is that, there's a period of intense uh, intrastate conflict during the 1980s. Any guesses as to what that is? It's like one conflict. Iran-Iraq? Yes, exactly. So this is all the Iran-Iraq war and then basically all the other battle deaths, right, going back to 1975 are coming off intrastate conflicts. And a large share of those interstate conflicts featured two sides that were dramatically uh, imbalanced in terms of power and I'll show you a little more on that later. Um, if you look at the number of conflicts, right, it's even more striking. Almost all the conflicts around the world, going back to 75, our interest date. Um, what's, what's perhaps more interesting is, so, you know, kind of, so these things are going on, so what for U.S. strategy? Um, well, you might want to imagine that the U.S. and NATO and the Western world have the ability to manage these conflicts successfully. And so what this is showing you is this is showing you the arrival rate of uh, interventions by the US and NATO back to 75. And you notice interventions arrive at a steady rate. And then on the right is the number that are ongoing at any given point in time. And you might notice that these things don't seem to end very much, right So you're arriving at a steady rate and the number you're engaged in in an ongoing basis is accumulating. So there's a there's some like strategic disjuncture here at the macro level in which, the US and the West and NATO are repeatedly going into places, but we're not getting out. And so as I talk about the things I'm going to talk about today and give you like lots of evidence that at the local level there is a kind of way of getting to reduced violence that works, you should have in the back of your head, well then why the hell are these things accumulating? Because clearly we haven't cracked how to accumulate those local victories into larger strategic victories. And, and just to make this more precise, um, this is just showing you the same trends. Um, but this is kind of the, um, uh, the, the specific interventions broken down by the country in which the intervening happened for combat and non-combat for the US and NATO back to 75. So you know, again, what you should notice here is lots of these long duration interventions um, and, uh, and then a lot of, uh, a lot of others coming and going. So this is like the big background for, for the study, is that you've got a lot of work going on by the international community to intervene in asymmetric conflicts. It is like sucking the oxygen out of a lot of policy disputes and policy discussions that could be spent on other things. And, and doesn't seem to be a lot of successful strategic resolution. Uh, okay. So, um, so that's the, the big motivation. So then the second kind of thing to think about is, well, what's the, what's the microdata look like? And what I'm gonna show you is a series of, of, of small multiple plots like this. So this one is showing you for the 24 most violent districts on a per capita basis in Afghanistan and Iraq. What were the monthly trends in combat incidents recorded uh, by the US and its allies? from 2004 uh, uh, or 2005 to 2014 for Afghanistan and through 2011 for Iraq. And, you know, if you stare at these, um, you know, some things might pop out. So I don't know, since, since we have a small group, like what are some things that pop out for you guys staring at these? Uh, so this is monthly. Um, so, so in Afghanistan, you see these very clear peaks and valleys. That's that's the that's the fighting season effect. So, um, you know, a place like Zari is uh, way up in the mountains, um, in, in southern Afghanistan. And so, you like you just can't move around in January and December, because um, like there's tons of snow on the ground and no roads, no good roads to snowplow. So no one's moving. So you get some big seasonality there. Uh, but then you also get some really interesting um, things that aren't seasonality, that seem to be very idiosyncratic and have very different trends. Um, so Nad Ali uh, here uh, is a, 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 an area outside of Lashgarga in Helmand province, which was the focus of a big offensive in 2010 that was like part of the centerpiece of um, uh, uh, McChrystal's campaign. Um, and, and, sorry, 2009. And so what happens in Nad Ali is you get this huge spike in violence and then it basically becomes a relatively peaceful, well-controlled place while you have other districts that on a per capitaized basis get worse much later or stay bad. Um, you know, so for example, Bar Mal um, continues like every fighting season for about six years, kind of hits the same peak, so there's no increase and decrease. And if you look at Iraq, you see similarly very different trends in per capitaized violence across locations. So, so just to peek on, pick on a couple, um, Kark is the area in central Baghdad where the green zone sits. Most of those incidents are inbound rocket fire. Um, violence there peaks pretty clearly in mid-2007 and then tails off as sectarian violence in, in Baghdad ends. Um, the peak of violence in, uh, in say, um, uh, uh, Balad doesn't come until late 2007, but it stays high throughout 2008 as um, uh, this is a- an area uh, outside of Baghdad where a lot of the fighters from Baghdad from uh, the Sunni militias were kind of pushed into as the awakening pushed them out of Baghdad. So there's tons of heterogeneity in local trends, and um, you see this in other places too. So this is just doing the same thing except now it's quarterly because we have a lot longer time series for these two countries, for Pakistan and the Philippines. So same same idea, just showing you kind of regular trends in conflict. And what you see again is that in each of these places there's a lot of variety within country in the timing of violence. If I showed you these for different kinds of violence, different kinds of violence would peak and vary at different times. And so what we're trying to do kind of epistemologically in the conflict is across a whole bunch of countries, learn what's driving that variation and see if we can use that to understand something deeper about conflict. So any questions on these? I guess one thing I should point out um, about uh, the, the Pakistan data. So this is per um, uh Notice that peak in Karachi in the mid-1990s. So if you put that on an absolute scale, that's way more violent in terms of number of deaths than anything that's happened in the tribal areas in northwest Pakistan over the last six years. Does anyone know what that fight was about? So so, so this is interesting on a couple levels, right? One is that there was this huge fight in Karachi, tens of thousands of people, right, and Uh, It was between um, two uh, ethnic groups uh, in in Karachi, the the Sindhis, native Sindhis, and Mohajirs, the uh, Muslims who had fled the descendants of the Muslims who had fled fled at Partition. Um, But it was like massively violent and disordered in a dense urban space, and hasn't left any shadow on institutional memory of a bunch of people who are very interested in security. So that should tell you something about the ability to like respond to these, recover from these conflicts. But Generally, like, huge variation. Um, And, you know, if you look, so this is violent incidents. um, You see the same kind of thing with people's attitudes. So what this is showing you is um, about every two months, from September 2004 through September 2010, um, the U.S. military in Baghdad ran uh, representative surveys for 10, what they called, uh, uh, districts, of about 2,000 people per district, right, for literally like 32 waves over six years. So every couple months they were out surveying, you know, more than 10,000 people. And so what we did is we just plotted the mean on a simple question, which is, do you support attacks on multinational forces or not? So zero is no, one is yes. And so what you can see is you know, kind of somewhere around 50% of people on average over time would it, were willing to express, like, yes, I support attacks on multinational forces. But the numbers bounce around a ton month to month, and they follow different trends in different regions. So, um, you know, for example, the area that's covered by the green zone, right, there's a clear reduction in, uh, so Wave 20 was around uh, mid-2007. In willingness to express support for attacks. Um, You don't see that at all, um, reduction at all, say in Sadr City, the Shia slum kind of to the north, uh, northeast of Baghdad, where there's like a steady increase from a pretty low baseline. And so if you look at this and you're kind of a quantitative social scientist, you're like, wow, there's a lot of variation to explain there. So if I can figure out what's driving either the violence up or down or the attitudes up or down. I can probably learn a lot about what the underlying process is that's generating the conflict. So that's, that's, that's really like the, the epistemological core of the book is going to a whole bunch of places and trying to understand this variation in violence. If you step back like a minute and think about the policy implications of this, it's that I think the kind of discourse that we have often in our policy, which is like there's a thing we should do for Afghanistan or a thing we should do for Iraq, or thing we should do for Yemen, is like totally wrong in some sense, right? There are like six different things you should want to do in six different parts of each country. And what this clearly shows, you know, what something like this, like the Afghanistan trends clearly show, is there are policy interventions you can take which will bring violence down even in really bad places. So like in Sangin in, 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 2000, uh, in 2010 and 2012, this carry, by the way, this is not just like everyone pulls out. There's, a, there's, some, there's some folks left to create violent incidents and, um, and you still get that drop. Um, so, you know, you want to understand what you can do to create that. And then we can, we can opine a little bit later about how you could accumulate that to national level deals. And I'll tell you one story at the end of a place where you really won a series of local victories or where the, the government won a series of local victories that created the political conditions for a deal that wouldn't have existed absent those victories. Uh, Okay, so let me give you kind of an argument for what's going on in these settings. Um, So so there's a whole bunch of things going on in asymmetric conflict. And what we did in this paper back in 2011 is we tried to write down um, a simple uh, game theoretic model that had three players in it, um, a community that has information on the activities of the uh, rebels in their, in their midst. Rebels who were seeking to impose costs on a government to effect some kind of political change. And we're kind of agnostic as to what that political change would be. And then a government that was trying to suppress the violence because it was costly, but to do so efficiently. And you know, something you see in lots of places that experience long-running political violence is governments don't go all in. So like, the Indian government is only putting so much effort behind crushing the Naxlite insurgency, or the insurgents in Nagaland in the northeast. And the Philippine government is only putting so much effort uh, into now crushing Abu Sayyaf, or back in the day fighting the New People's Army. And, you know, the U.S. government in the 1870s was only putting, like, a little bit of effort into suppressing white, um, uh, you know, kind of um, planter terrorism against newly enfranchised African Americans during Reconstruction. Right. You could have done a lot more, but you made a decision that there was some level of cost you wanted to get to. So you employed force. So we think about a series of interactions here. And what I'm going to do a little bit later is I'm going to show you some quantitative evidence on the relationship between civilian casualties and TIPS that are flowing into the government. Um, but in various papers, we've explored all these interactions. And um, so I think the, the right way to get kind of some intuition before I talk to you about how the model works is to show you some things that people have said on this. So one of the things we did as we were working on the book is in uh, 2014 and 2015 Joe uh, went to the Philippines where he'd served as um, a Foreign Area Officer, uh, as a Special Forces Officer, and as a defense attaché for a number of years, and went around and talked with both uh, his friends in the Army and people they were friends with and then some of his friends in the army had previously been guerrillas and so he spent some time talking to some of the guerrillas as well and collected like a bunch of um, a bunch of kind of uh, interviews. So we have this nice interview archive um, uh, from these folks Uh, but one of the most interesting was this gentleman Vic Corpus so I don't know, has anyone heard of Vic? So so Vic is a really interesting character in kind of the annals of uh, 20th century insurgency he was a lieutenant in the Philippine army, uh, wasn't happy with the Philippine government, and so went over and fought with the communist rebels for several years, uh, as Ka Ming, that was his his nom de guerre when he was a rebel, um, was was captured, was put on trial, sentenced to death, um, for reasons that are not clear, his execution wasn't carried out, and several years later he became a key figure in brokering a deal between elements of the NPA and the government, at which point he rejoined the army and rose to the rank of general. He's like really interesting character. Um, so, I mean, he was one of the few people who's literally fought on both sides in a long running insurgency. And um, uh, Vic, in his interview, over and over said things like this. Um, so, this was he was talking about the importance for the guerrillas of having the population providing them information. Um, Of course that goes both ways and so another set of people we interviewed were people who were engaged on the government side currently in trying to fight uh, the Islamist insurgency in the South. And um, something that came up uh, with them was this question of, you know, in that diagram I showed you uh, that arrow which was like services going to the people. And so why would that work? And so when you talk to people, you hear kind of lots of different versions of why that would work. Some are transactional, some are not. Um, the point uh, the point that uh, that General uh, Kakalada, or Kakalala, sorry, was, was trying to make here um, was really about the informing challenge that people have, which is I'm 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 you know I'm a civilian I'm kind of doing my duty or the story in the that we tell in the book. Um, There's a father who's putting his kids to bed and he hears some people moving around outside his his hut um, messing around with a pile of garbage on the side of the road. And you have a choice as to what to do. And historically, people like this had provided information to counterinsurgents, but they did so at great personal risk. And so all kinds of strategies had to be created to make it possible for them to share that information. So, for example, in Iraq um, in 2004, A thing that some U.S. units did is they would go into an apartment building and they would take all the military-age males out, and they would pick out a couple at random and their source, and they would beat them up in front of everyone, and then they'd take them off to be interrogated, and, you know, they'd be nice to their source and give them some money and stuff, and then they'd send everyone back into the building. And so you did that so it wasn't clear which of the people who were kind of assaulted had shared information. So that's a thing you had to do because people didn't have a way to share information covertly. And what, what we were talking about in this uh, set of discussions was how the introduction of cell phone coverage in all these rural areas was reshaping counterinsurgency. And the point that he's making is a, is a more general one, which is the safer it is to share information, the less the kind of insurgents can do. And this comes up again and again in these um, And and the reason why is what kind of Vic expressed uh, later in his interview, which is um, people are making like a calculation, at least in his experience, about how much harm am I suffering from the two sides? Like, who do I really want to control the piece of territory that I live in? And then I'm going to make a choice as a civilian about sharing information or not on the basis of that behavior. This is like a very like self-interested kind of calculation on the part of individuals. And... So what we wanted to do in the context of writing down a game-theoretic model of this, of this interaction is we wanted to kind of encapsulate the wisdom of lots of conversations like the three I've just shown you, you know, as well as Joe's experience doing this professionally and Ellie's experience doing this um, in mostly in the Philippines and Ellie's experience of doing this um, in southern Lebanon. So, so what we came up with... Um, was a a model that we think is pretty straightforward. And I want to give you the intuition for it um, because that's going to be important for thinking about the analytics I'm going to show you in a minute. But the the basic idea is uh, community members are choosing to share information or not, just like Vic talked about people doing. And when they make that decision, they make it knowing that if they share information, the rebels are very susceptible to government force because we're by definition like in a set of conflicts where the government has the ability to apply overwhelming force if they know where and when to do it. And this is where like that intuition can lead you astray is if you think about environments where it's actually like a force on force issue like maybe some rural African insurgencies then that information may not be that valuable but in contexts where um, you know the U.S. and its allies are engaged or where you have a potentially competent force like you know the Indian army or the Pakistani army or the Filipino army or basically any army that has lots of funds and support from outsiders then that information makes you very sensitive so, so that's the, the, the community's choice the rebels are choosing how much violence to produce and then the government is making these two investments it's making an investment in military suppression so how many forces does it put in an area and then it can also do nice things for people So provide some set of public goods, G. So this is like a very, very simple framework. And the one thing to highlight is that G. That G can be broken up into two components. One is stuff that people only get the benefit of if the government controls the territory. And one is things they get the benefit of regardless. So you can think of the regardless part as like putting in a road. Once the road is in, the road is in. And it doesn't really matter who controls the territory at night. Things can move up and down the road. G might be like, um, you know, a, a small rural health cli- clinic, which is only going to be staffed if it's safe for the doctors to travel. So, are, I thought
2: from the, um, from the chapters that you were including G,
1: some form of G for the rebels also. Do you acknowledge that rebels? We we do, we do, and so and they totally do as a pr- as a practical matter. Um, in the version. In the theory, it turns out um, not to matter whether you give the rebels G or not. The allocation decision on the government side is the same because the rebels are going to choose some optimum. And um, if the government is providing G and the rebels are providing G, those shift a little bit the like equilibrium level of violence you get, but they don't shift the direction of any of the comparative statics on the government side and since what we can measure in in data is the government's investments and since there aren't there's no there's no thing where it's like that we there's no thing in the theory if you if you write the theory down with the rebels being able to make an investment in g there's no thing where at like high levels of g the government's best response function looks one way and at low levels of g it looks another and so for estimation it didn't make a difference. But it's totally true that in in practice some rebel groups do, some rebel groups don't. And when you write down the model with rebels having the ability to allocate to G, what what makes the difference is how costly is it for them to provide services. And so if you think about the groups that have provided services, like a prominent example is Hezbollah when it was operating as a guerrilla group in southern Lebanon, provided services. But it did so in areas outside of Israel's ability to reach out and touch them without initiating a full-scale reinvasion of Lebanon. It never did so in areas that were hotly contested. And in Iraq, like Al-Qaeda in Iraq and and the Sunni militant groups never really provided services because everything was so tightly surveilled that had they tried, the people doing it would have been arrested immediately. So they never did. The Shia militias did a little bit um, in places where they could compromise the police, so they could kind of get away with providing services without without arrest. So, the, the like the loose intuition for variation across groups matches what you would see in the theory, which is if it's really costly for the rebels to provide a unit of services, they just don't do it. And you know, when, when we when we looked out at we, we looked out at like lots of groups for purposes of the book. Um, we found some did, some didn't, and it, it seemed to map onto this dimension of could they basically get away with it, like could they use it as a strategy without getting lots of people rolled up. So, okay, so, 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 so how does this thing work? Just really quickly, um, uh, there's going to be some community attitude that's unobserved by both sides, And so this is just like people's private political beliefs, which no one one knows for sure, right? Like in any conflict, um, people on both sides have an idea of how everyone feels, but they don't know for sure. And the reason that's substantively important is you see mistakes on both sides in conflicts, and that's driving the variation that I'm going to show you later in the amount of tips that are coming to government forces in Iraq. Um, So governments and rebels choose what to invest in, community members make their choice, and then control is is determined. And so so the way this thing works, the way the equilibrium works out in this model, is there is a level of violence that defines what we call an information-sharing constraint, which is the level of violence above which the population gets so frustrated with the rebels that they start sharing information. And the equilibrium of this model turns out to be You know, if you assume rebels can make enough of a nuisance of themselves that the government cares and a couple other conditions, the equilibrium of the model turns out to be this very intuitive thing where you produce violence like right up to the level at which the population will flip and then you stop. And because you're uncertain about the community's preferences, sometimes you produce a little more than they're willing to tolerate and then someone decides to inform. And, and 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 so so this is kind of kind of the the, the equilibrium interaction. Um, uh, this is this is how rebels talked about this in Iraq. Um, so um, this is Carrie. I apologize. You've seen this quote before, but this is from a series of communications that were written um, within the Al Qaeda in Iraq cell in Ramadi in early two thousand and six immediately after they assassinated uh, Sheikh Nasser al fadawi who was one of the initiators of what later became known as the Anbar Awakening, the, the movement of a bunch of Sunni tribes in Anbar to realign with the U.S. against al-Qaeda in Iraq. Um, and so immediately afterwards, there's like a bunch of communications, and the central leadership basically writes to the local leaders in Ramadi and says, um, you shouldn't have done that, now you've really pissed people off and they're going to turn against us. So basically, you've exceeded the level of violence that the population will tolerate. And so people are going to start informing. And um, in response, these guys write back and ask him for uh, some standard rules of engagement. Um, But but this kind of of logic shows up in other places too. So when we talked with, uh, or when Joe talked with Vic in the interview about civilian casualties, Vic made this interesting point, which was that discipline a, was much more important for him as a commander in the rebels than it was as a commander in the army. Because when he was with the rebels, kind of overstepping and mistreating civilians really, really mattered because you were so sensitive to information. That was kind of the, the, the intuition in the model. So, so if you kind of play this, this theory out, um, you get a series of testable implications. And so the first one is that making informing safer should, should decrease violence. And that's, that's what was kind of captured in that quote that I showed you earlier um, uh, from uh, General Khalilah. And we, we show in a 2015 paper, Niels Wiedman and I, that when you introduce cell phone coverage in Iraq, um, basically when you put a tower in that covers a piece of territory that has never been covered before, violence drops compared to the area around it that already had coverage, but which gets just like improved uh, reception basically from the tower. So that one checks out. Uh, A second implication of this is that providing services that are kind of conditional, whose value is conditional on the government controlling the territory, that brings violence down. That turned out to be true um, uh, in in Iraq. Um, A third implication is that there should be complementarities between force provision by the government and the provision of aid. So the idea is that where there are more, seems fairly intuitive, where there are more forces to take advantage of information, providing resources to a community that earns you a little bit of information should bring violence down more than in places where there are fewer forces available. And that that turns out to be true in Afghanistan. Uh, Renard Sexton's um, Peace piece in APSR shows kind of a complementarity there and, and in Iraq. Um, the fourth implication is that civilian casualties caused by one side or the other um, should cause shifts in attitudes, which we see in a bunch of survey work in Pakistan, um, but also should cause shifts in the amount of information flowing. And so that's what I'm going to show you next. Um, uh, to to, to to Nisha's point, uh, both sides will provide services if it's not too costly. There, are, So there are various places you can kind of look for service provision by different groups, and that turns out to, to mostly be true. And then the last, and I think the most important, is that in asymmetric conflicts, economic conditions should be inconsistently correlated with violence. So there's this big literature in political economy now that Um, looks at the relationship between various kinds of economic shocks and violence. And mostly what the literature finds is there's a positive average relationship. So the economy gets bad and violence goes up. But when you look at places where there's a competent military on one side fighting a much weaker rebel group on the other side, that relationship isn't there. So you don't see it in Iraq, Afghanistan, or the Philippines. If you look across Colombia, you see it only in places where the government doesn't have a lot of forces. You don't see it in places where the government was trying hard. And so, what this suggests is that in places where the conflict is symmetric, or what the theory would suggest is if the conflict's symmetric, then you can think about any kind of like contest success function type model where you need a certain number of forces on each side to win. But if you're in this world where what the rebels are doing is they're marching not up to their manpower constraint, but to the point at which the population gets angry with them, then it doesn't necessarily matter how the economy is doing. And it could even go the other way because you have money to buy information in these settings and maybe that money goes further when the economy is bad. And there's some great stories from from the British counterinsurgency in Malaya about them kind of working through to get the price schedule right for information which support that. Uh, okay, so so now I want to talk about Uh, the the empirical part of the talk. So um, this is a paper that's uh, that's coming out shortly with with a graduate student of mine, Andrew Shaver, Um, and what what we did is um, uh, in Iraq, um, it turned out that throughout the war uh, the US and Iraqi forces were distributing things like this. So this is an example, this one's from uh, the 10th Mountain Division, handed this out in Baghdad in 2010, Um, but things like this were handed out throughout the war. So this is a little card, a little laminated card that soldiers would carry with them. And they'd give out to people uh, as they walked around. And all these cards are like variants on this theme, which is if you don't like what's happening, a way that you can fight back is to provide some information. And the first, uh, the first line that people could call into to provide such information um, was set up uh, in southern Iraq even before US forces had gotten to Baghdad. And this is, this is like a standard thing. Um, you know, this is like some of the advertising that was provided for this during the war. And, you know, um, the main line was this 130 line. So all the Iraqi telcos and the cell phone providers set it up so that if you dialed 130 on your phone, it was a free call. It didn't cost you any minutes. Um, and and you, could, you, could, uh, you could share information. The CIA put up, like, a bunch of things online that you could go into to provide information. And so this was a, a general effort to collect tips. Um, uh, they did um, a bunch they hired YouGov to do market research on how the advertising for this stuff was working and we through FOIA got some of the YouGov data declassified um, which was kind of interesting and you know so basically like there's like super high awareness that these tip lines existed among Iraqis so that you could call in information or text in information. So um, uh, you know, this is this is kind of funny. This is from a New York Times photo, which um, has the guy holding up the ad I just showed you in the background. It was kind of fun. We found this picture like going through old New York Times articles. And we're like, oh, hey, that's like the ad that we also found. Um, other countries have adopted this. So Pakistan, after um, uh, a series of attacks in two thousand and ten, including one on a school in Lahore, created this one seven one seven line. Same idea. you can um, If anyone can read Urdu, this basically says like, if you don't like uh, terrorist activity, call one seven one seven, and we will do something about it. And so, um, so, so what uh, what we what what we and by we I mean Andrew managed to do um, is he actually got uh, geolocated data on the flow of tips declassified for like a sixty week period. So, um, so on a weekly basis, I'll show you what the, the reports look like in a minute, but there were these reports made to the headquarters of Multinational Forces Iraq saying in each, uh, or Multinational Corps Iraq, saying in each province of the country this week, how many tips did we get on insurgent activity? And so what we can do is we can take that, and then we can say, okay, let's look at where were civilian casualties caused by one side or the other, because we worked for, from like 2006 through about 2009, worked with uh, Iraq Body Count to do, which is now Every Casualty Counts, to do like a much better job of geolocating harm to civilians in Iraq. Um, and, uh, and we got information on civilian casualty incidents. And then um, you know, we can control for a bunch of other stuff, so combat incidents in this administrative data that the U.S. government maintained, the thing I used to show you those trends earlier, Um, the the um, the data carry created on like the number of forces present in an area population data we can control for a bunch of stuff Um, so what the cool data look like is this so in response to a FOIA request um, on on tip data we kind of knew the data were being tracked Um, they included this set of PowerPoint slides that um, that showed basically the the flow of tips by province Uh, by week for this 60-week period and so what you can do is there's like a there's some software out there that will let you take any generic chart that has a scale on it and extract the numerical values and so we just ran these through that to get a a account of the weekly tips that were flowing in to coalition forces and so now these are useful tips what did they they mean by that Um, so we spent a bunch of time calling and talking to people who worked on these tip lines both Iraqis and Americans and what they meant by useful tips was one of two things. Either uh, they were able to preempt an attack with the tip, or it gave them information that was useful in an ongoing investigation. So either like the tip led them to an IED, or it was considered a valuable part of some case file that they were building on someone. And, um, so, so, you know, there's some noise in here, and this definition of informational versus preemptive like, wasn't, doesn't seem to have been super consistently applied. But generally, this was, this was what they found useful. Um, what share of the stuff coming into these lines was this? Uh, we don't actually know, because for most of the country, they didn't record it. Uh, in Basra, the British did. And so the ratio of useful tips to, like, overall... Uh, ranged from in Basra over the course of the war, ranged from like one in five to one in a hundred at certain points in time where the militias in Basra were trying to like flood the tip lines and make them not work. So this is this is kind of what was useful net of whatever the insurgents were trying to do to jam the lines. When we, when we talked to the operators about this, um, what they told us is that when someone came on early on, they weren't very good at like telling what was good and what wasn't. But very quickly, you learn that it was not hard to figure out who was faking it and who wasn't. So I don't know if that's right, but that's, that's kind of what they told us. So I'm going to, in a totally unbiased way, choose to believe them because it makes the data, makes the data better. Um, so, so what's the identification strategy? So anytime you have like data like this, right? you always want to know, can I identify a causal effect going from the treatment to the outcome? So you need something that's moving the treatment around that's independent of anticipation of the outcome. And you could easily imagine how that could fail here. One could be um, people in an area um, anticipate that there's going to be some big um, risky thing happening by insurgents that's going to cause civilian casualties, and so they start calling in tips ahead of time. Another might be that um, government forces are moving into an area, so people feel safer calling in tips, so tips go up. But because government forces are moving into an area, they get in more combat, and so civilian casualties also go up. And so, what what we're gonna what we do here is we say, look, and this is like there's nothing there's nothing fancier. We say, look, the trends in tips by province are like fairly smooth. They go up and down a little bit, but they kind of they kind of move up and down like relatively smoothly. So this is the arrival rate uh, of tips per enemy-initiated combat incident. So this is like. How many tips are you getting per time you get attacked? Um, So that's like a relatively smooth time series. The arrival rate of civilian casualties caused by government forces or insurgents is very stochastic, right? There's this, like, there's not a clear trend here. So in green is coalition caused civilian casualties. And you see these, these things aren't happening like every day, there are certain days where they happen. Uh, and then there are other days where they don't. Even in like relatively violent places like Nineveh Province where Mosul is, right, there are lots of there are lots of weeks with no civilian casualties caused by coalition forces, and then some weeks with a with a significant number. And the same is true for the insurgents. And so so what we're going to try and do is we're going to try and isolate the variation in tips that's coming off that variation in casualties. Um, that randomness in casualties. And the empirical strategy, so it's, it's going to be like pretty straightforward. Um, uh, there's some random component to civilian casualties. And and this is like, if Carrie and I get in a firefight, um, maybe there's someone walking behind her, and maybe like they were delayed at the checkout counter leaving the supermarket, and so they're still over there at the moment that we get in the fight, and so they, they're safe. So there's some randomness in the suffering of civilians in these contexts and we're gonna try and isolate that with this kind of panel data thing where we're gonna say what's the change in tips in this province from last week to this week as a function of in the week before what was the change in casualties caused by the coalition what was the change in casualties caused by the insurgents what was the change in casualties due to sectarian violence a time trend time fixed effect in this case and, and, and there's gonna be some noise that's like nicely distributed, or we're gonna assume it's nicely distributed. And what I'm gonna show you in the results is like, this is like, you could throw this kind of approach at like anything. Um, it's like incredibly robust. So all the things you would think that might make this fail just don't in this case. So it's probably causal. So that's the, that's, that's the story. And, and to step back to the big picture for a minute, the reason like this is worth going into. Is the epistemological like approach of the whole project is to accumulate credible uh, facts like this one like what I'm going to show you here in like lots of different settings and think of them as like pieces of the puzzle to fill out the evidence around those six implications that I showed you when we did the theory so there's like nine or ten different papers where we do something like this in some setting um, okay so uh, so let me show you results um, we have we can calculate descriptive statistics which is nice. Um, What I do want to show you guys is that um, in general um, the the kind of average change in the number of tips coming in over the period from um, uh, mid 2007 to like mid 2008 is downwards which makes sense because like this is the period when the insurgency uh, is coming down. Uh, The same is true of the number of combat incidents. Um, Most weeks you have like, no change in the number of civilian casualties going on. That's because most weeks, neither side causes any. And then sometimes they go up, sometimes they go down. Um, there is a steady rate of sectarian casualties coming on, and that's positive because this is a period when for most of the period sectarian violence is going up. So uh, let me show you some tables, um, which is everyone's favorite thing to look at in a presentation. Um, what, what I want to try and encourage you to do is, is read these tables as if they're like a graph. And so what I'm showing you on the bottom is because we have, um, uh, 13 clusters, rather than doing standard clustered standard errors, we do this thing called the wild cluster bootstrap, which basically, um, lets, gets the standard errors right. If in each province, there's some unique source of noise, like the fact that like Baghdad is way bigger than like, um, I don't know. Uh, like, so, so just to give you a sense, um, so Sal al-Din where Mosul is, this is something like uh, 5 million people across the whole province. Um, Baghdad is something like 8 or 9 million. Or sorry, Nineveh is uh, 4 or 5 million. Baghdad's 8 or 9 million. Sal al-Din is um, maybe a million. Tamim is like 50,000. So these are like vastly differently sized units. And so the standard errors are going to be really different. So, 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 so what you're seeing here is, is the 95% confidence interval on the coefficient. And so the way you should read this is that, basically, if I look at the change in coalition-caused casualties in uh, the previous week, tips drop when coalition-caused casualties go up. When insurgents-caused casualties, tips go up. These things, when you, like, independently are there, when you control for both, right, they're both arguably arriving through some random process, the effect remains. And then you can start to kind of think about different things you could control for. So you might worry that it's like an artifact of sectarian violence. And so if it was, if you controlled for changes in sectarian violence, it should attenuate the coefficient. And it doesn't. You could worry about it's some spurious thing due to, like, when combat goes up in the next period, tips go up, but casualties also go up, and so controlling for combat should attenuate the effect if you, that were the case and, and it doesn't. Or you could worry about, there's just something like specific about levels of violence in certain periods that are generated by past combat and past tips. And if that were the case, then controlling for what's going on in the period which the tips are provided should attenuate the effect, and again, like it doesn't. So, I, like I've like I've been working on stuff like this for like a decade now. I've never had results like remotely this stable before. So, it's almost like suspicious. Um, so, so, so real quick. So, the magnitude of these effects. Um, so, an increase in civilian killings by insurgents. so one standard deviation increase which is seven civilians killed in a province in a week. That predicts about three and a half tips flowing into the tip line in the following week. So, I don't know whether that's big or not, it's a one and a half percent increase on the mean. Um, A one standard deviation increase in killings by coalition forces, about five and a half civilians killed. Um, That predicts 4.4 fewer tips, or a two percent reduction from the mean. if, if you know, when you do like um, policy experiments, you normally think about standardized treatment effects in the 0.1 range as being meaningful, like policy relevant treatment effects. So these are, you know, between like 0.6 and 0.7 standard deviations. So they're not big treatment effects in, in you know, by kind of what you think about in the policy evaluation literature. Um, but the effect of one of these tips could be quite large. So during the period of these data, um, we talked to a bunch of people who were working with this information, and what they told us is that in most areas that they had worked in, people would go out on an operation. They would run a raid um, or, in some cases, use indirect fire, so drop a bomb or send, uh, at that period, drop a bomb, on the basis of a single tip. So one tip could drive an operation that went and rolled up like an ID making cell in an area, and that skill set was highly concentrated, so you could see significant effects from some of these. Um, You could start to think of all kinds of other things that might drive this. So lots of stories people come up with are about like past trends and informing having like some long-run trend in an area. So an area is just like moving against, say it's moving against the government. So people are informing less over time and civilian casualties are going up over time because people are more cooperative with the insurgents and so either the soldiers get frustrated and are more likely to cause civilian casualties, or the insurgents are able to operate in ways that put civilians at risk more because the civilians are willing to tolerate it because the area is moving against the government. So if any of those things were driving the results, if you threw in controls for past changes, you should attenuate the result. And so if you control for, you know, four weeks of previous changes in civilian casualties, again, you just want to kind of like look across and see that the coefficient and the standard errors really don't change much as you march across. So controlling for past civilian casualties doesn't move things. Combat incidents doesn't move things. Trends in in informing doesn't move things. Controlling for the size of an area doesn't move things. There's a technical way in which the result could be spurious um, if areas just had like different levels of violence that were correlated in in a certain way. Um, Like none of those things affects the overall trend. And in fact, the more you kind of throw at this, the like more statistically strong and the larger the effect becomes substantively. Um, you know if if there are people in the room who are really persnickety, you could you can throw lots of fixed effects at it. You could think about weighting the regression. you could think about weight, you could think about looking only at sunni and mixed areas where all the violence was. Um, you could also think about this the fact that um, the Civilian t- Casualties time series um, is like very, very um, over dispersed and that's a technical way of saying there's a really small number of truly horrific incidents in which 20, 30, 50, and in one case 100 people get killed and then a lot more things where one or two people die. And so those really big incidents could drive a spurious result like the standard thing with any regression. And so, if you take those and you say if it's over three standard deviations from the mean, so if it's over plus 20 or minus 20 change from the previous week, we're just going to call it plus or minus 20. So, you reduce the influence of those outliers, um, the results actually become stronger. So, there's like all that stuff uh, isn't doing it. Cumulative effects, same thing. Um, it's not being driven by any one province. So, what we do here is we just drop one province at a time and reestimate the model. So there's no one place that's driving the effect. Um, and then what I think is the, kind of the, the most important thing is if what's happening is um, the causality is running from, um, from civilian casualties that for some reason there's a, there's a bad, this province has a bad week, and so in the next week people respond to that, then what we shouldn't see is if we flip that and we say um, in the next week you're going to have a good or bad week, is that correlated with the amount of tips that come in this week, we should find nothing. So we just say let's put the lead of civilian casualties on the right-hand side instead of the lag, and all the confidence intervals overlap zero. Right? So so So, so time is kind of, flowing in the direction that we we've posited. right? so if there were just like some general trends that were driving this, you would fail this kind of placebo test. Um, so again, substantively, this is meaningful. Um, this is some examples of kind of what these things led to. So these are from the declassified documents as well. So these are like in the reports where they're talking about what are we getting from the tip line. These are the kinds of things that, that people said resulted from tips. So, you know, these are kind of, this is two IEDs. You know, this is a period where in most provinces you were having, uh, you know, high tens to low thousands of IED attacks attempted in a given week. So this is not, this is not a big event. Um, this is a pretty big event right? because the production of IEDs was highly concentrated. So highly variable effects, um, what I can tell you is if you look for an effect from this variation of tipping on levels of violence, you can't find anything. And so there are two ways to interpret that. One is like the whole theoretical edifice is wrong and that the information flow really didn't matter. So maybe the first stage is there. Maybe people are sharing information or not, but it's not important. The other way to read it is it's like a super noisy environment and those very small or those small uh, treatment effects that you're observing from variation in casualties, you just can't pick up the effect of those on violence, given all the other things that are making violence go up or down. You know, because you know the epistemological approach here is is to take lots of studies and see if they kind of accumulate around one picture. I tend to think it's the the former in, that it's it's that it's just like or the latter that's just too noisy. Not that the whole thing is wrong, but maybe the whole thing's wrong. Um, okay, so uh, so the first, the first thing to point out, just like the, the quant evidence I showed you, uh, is, is that. And um, that's important in, in the sense that this is a relationship that professionals in the literature have posited for at least 50 or 60 years, and that's been core to a lot of academic debates around uh, asymmetric conflict and rebellion and insurgency. And this is the first direct kind of... Um, Plausibly causally identified quantitative evidence for that relationship. So I think that's kind of cool. Um, um, yeah, uh, that's uh, that's that point. Um, and you know, the identification is not ideal. So if you want like a super well causally identified study, um, this isn't it because we're aggregating evidence across. In 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 the case of Nineveh and Baghdad pretty big populations, and so there's a lot of noise that's getting averaged out. Um, but, uh, but I can't think of anything that would explain the stability of the results other than the story that I'm trying to tell you. So if, if you guys can, that's awesome. Um, I haven't been able to. So, so what does this mean? Um, so, um, you know, if I step back from this particular study and I look across this set of studies, There's pretty clear evidence that if you put um, a a large number of fairly well-trained forces in an area and you provide um, conditional services to them so that people get a benefit from cooperating with the forces that are put in, and you make it safe for people to inform on the insurgents, and maybe you work the politics a little bit so that you can get local militias to flip sides and cooperate with you, you can bring violence down from very high levels in really hard places. And that seems pretty clear and consistent with the U.S. experience in Afghanistan and Iraq and other countries' experience elsewhere. Um, so there exists an approach that you can take. There's, like a, there's a recipe to fix a valley or to fix uh, you know, a mid-sized city or even a large city, as the case of Mosul uh, illustrates. Um, it's not in, in kind of this work but those local successes can clearly pave the way for strategic deals, and the paradigmatic example of this is Colombia. So I'm going to tell you like a version of um, the how Colombia got to the peace deal that's like super U.S. centric, and I apologize in advance for this, but I think it's like it's not a crazy one, which is that um, the uh, Colombian the executive uh, branch of the Colombian government. Uh, in the 1990s, um, wanted to invest more against the FARC than the legislature was willing to invest. And as a result, they lacked the mobility to take advantage of the information they had on where the FARC were in the jungle. And so the FARC were able to operate into the hills overlooking Bogota uh, from the east, um, to the point where they were actually able to shell the presidential inauguration, and in, I think it was 1998, um, with mortars, like with pretty short-range uh, weapons. Um, the U.S., in the context of Plan Colombia, comes along and provides loan guarantees for Black Hawk helicopters and subsidized maintenance and overcomes the funding constraint for the Colombian military's acquisition of, of mobility assets that would let them take advantage of the information they have on the rebels. They start using the helicopters to push out into, previous, into areas previously ceded to the FARC, and they push the FARC away from all the major population centers, to the point where it's a pretty peripheral thing in the country's politics um, by 2008, 2009. Um, What this enables is two things. It creates great political pressure within the FARC to make a deal, because they're clearly not getting the political changes they want through military means. And it makes it possible, after a number of years, for the government to make a deal without losing power. Right, because the deal and the and the concessions made to the FARC in the recent peace process would have been unimaginable four years ago, when the memory of the FARC being on the footsteps uh, of Bogota was so fresh in people's minds. But by pushing them out into the into the hinterlands, you created a situation where you could make a bargain that would stick. So you know we can talk about other examples of this, but you know we think the way this works is the local. Successes affect the incentives of insurgents. So think about like the logic for a Sunni nationalist insurgent in, say, mid 2007, when the Sawadi, when the Awakening has moved through many parts of the country, and it's clear that there's an increasing number of forces focused on you. Right, your incentive to change sides and kind of stop fighting while you can, while you can, is much bigger than it was for like the first couple people to switch sides. Um, can affect national level politics. So to, to, go, to go to the, the Iraqi case, um, there were a significant number of people in the country, indeed a, a plurality by some accounts, in um, 2009 who were willing to vote for someone who said that there should be like accommodations made with former insurgents. That would have been unthinkable in 2007 at the height of the insurgency for 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 someone like Alawi to get any votes at all in Shia areas, and by 2009 he was not a ton, but he was getting them, um, and local successes can pave the way for economic growth. So if you think about um, India, uh, there's a, a, a town um, in one of the in, the, in one of the Naxal bel- belts in the town uh, in the in the state of Chhattisgarh um, that is like booming. It has a nicer airport than uh, Detroit. Um, And it's booming for steel production and mining because the thing the government has done is they've pushed the Naxalites in that area far enough into the jungle that international companies and large Indian companies will start locating there to take advantage of uh, the rich iron deposits and coal deposits in the region. So you can create the stage for economic growth. And if you go there now, um, the police kind of find it inconceivable that the Naxalites will be in districts that they were in just a decade ago because they've had so much economic growth and they have so much more capacity now. Um, so those kind of local victories are like clearly uh, neither necessary, because you have plenty of conflicts that end without them. And they're clearly not sufficient because Iraq. So the, I think the challenge for kind of future scholarship is you've got, like, I think we've established a broad range of evidence around one theory of how these asymmetric conflicts work. That theory suggests a menu. That menu is kind of like the consensus in the policy community, it has a lot of evidence behind it. But um, it's not getting, in lots of cases, the strategic outcomes that you want. And so I think the kind of deep question we're kind of left with, and what's driving the next set of research, is how do you transition those local successes into something that looks like a strategic victory? And you know, Columbia gives you maybe one example. Um, But that was, you know, you had to freeze that conflict for basically almost a decade before the politics around it changed enough that the two sides could make a deal that looks like it's finally going to bring the FARC in from the cold. And so, like, maybe that's a generic lesson, but um, but that's a long time frame for like U.S. strategy to think about.
0: Great, Uh, thank you very much. Uh, floor is open for questions, keeping in mind that uh, the lease on the room only lasts for 20 more minutes. Okay, uh, we'll ask the uh, questioners to be brief and the respondee to be brief as well. Boy, I got a lot of questions. Uh, Nisha, um, so uh, yeah, okay. So I want to ask the question I really want to know, which is the question you just
2: raised.
1: How do you translate these? Oh, I can totally systems. talk about that. We have some results. Okay, okay so then that, I, that's the question I, I really want. I've got like eight backups. Um, the but I also am
2: curious how your argument and whether it maps onto Kalibas's theories of zones. Um, you know, this idea of information provision is, is critical to his argument, and a lot of what he finds or suggests is that information improvement Driven by petty grievances, it's not useful information. Um, so just, I was just curious how theoretically you, how and whether you're connecting your
1: argument and findings to, to his argument. Yeah, so, so um, let's, let me talk about that. I'm sure the, the first question will come up more, but I think the relationship to his arguments come up a lot. So there, there are a couple things, um, you know, assumptions that are kind of baked into Kalivas's argument about zones of control, which I think aren't um, aren't necessarily right in highly asymmetric conflicts, and are certainly not right with the existence of um, basically good cell phone coverage in conflict areas. So one of them is that um, the the risk to me from informing is, is um, highly dependent on who controls the territory. Um, and in, um, in a lot of asymmetric conflicts uh, of late, the ability of uh, rebels to assassinate people, even in fairly well-controlled, government-controlled territories, is quite high. And so there were very few parts of Baghdad, say, in 2007, that if you were targeted by an insurgent group, you were safe without massive amounts of security. At the same time, because the city had pretty much complete cell phone coverage, there was really nowhere where you couldn't you know, step outside and text a message and, and no one would know that it was you. And so what that meant is that the kind of in, in the context of the model in the, in the civilian's utility function, there's a term that we label R for the cost of retaliation. And that thing just doesn't vary much as you move across zones of control in lots of modern conflicts. Um, And so I think, you know, Kali Stathis' intuition for this came from doing an unbelievable amount of work on a conflict that happened in the late 1940s, or in the mid-1940s. And the set of tools that people had both to communicate with each other about who should be killed, to find who should be killed, and to communicate information to the government that in the world we live in now is just like vastly different, the other thing is when you you know when you go out to test that argument, um, like a lot of the tests just don't hold up. So if you take like the same stuff they did in their um, 2009 uh, AJPS piece that he and Matt Coker did, and you just take the same data and extend out the period uh, for the rest of the Vietnam War as opposed to the small slice that they did, it totally doesn't hold up. So I think it's it's um yeah, so I, I think, now the the point about petty grievances is like totally there, yeah. um and was a big problem. Yeah? So I don't, I don't, I mean, it's fine with me, it's not, right. <laughs> um, but it seems to me just
2: on this point about petty grievances, mm-hmm. that, but also speaking to having cell phone coverage, or having cell phones, mm-hmm. that one implication that might be interesting to look at is that rebels might get better information. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, so this is a really interesting thing we found in, in working on the book, is um, there doesn't seem to be a consensus between the government and the rebels in lots of conflicts about who information communication technology favors. So in southern Thailand, the government um, actually like was restricting cell phone coverage and making it really hard for people to get SIMs. Um, and in um, uh, northern Nigeria and Afghanistan... The rebels were threatening providers, making them shut down towers at night or blowing them up altogether. Uh, in Iraq, um, uh, some of the Sunni groups were threatening the providers for not doing a good enough job of maintaining coverage. And so there's like, there's not a, there's not a clear consensus. I'm, just, I'm making a really simple point. Yeah. But just that if there's an anonymous tip line, if you, if, the, if your R is low, But if the R is high, then you're probably more likely to Oh, right, right. really Because if the R is high, like you're not going to do it unless it's worth it. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, I have to think about, so that would be, okay. you have to think about what that means for the interpretation of the cell phone results. That's interesting, okay. Dan.
3: Yeah, yeah um, great talk, really fascinating. I'd love to know if you presented this to uh, DOD or Trump. Um, but my question is along the following lines. In your last slide, you had something about local successes. Mm-hmm. But absent from that was the role of TIPS in those local successes. It seems like most of your empirical work was about TIPS. So I'm wondering what happened to TIPS on your way to the conclusion.
1: Uh, So
3: um, what do tips actually do? Do they create a virtuous cycle? Why do these conflicts not end? Um, If you get a tip, does that lead to a tactical victory? Does it lead to a a fake? Could it be a fake tip that leads to civilian casualties? Mm -hmm. Um, If if tips are generally good, why doesn't it create a virtuous cycle where you end up winning tactically that accumulates to a strategic victory? So I'm just wondering what what happened to tips
1: yeah, so, so it's a great question. So um, so to go back to these six implications, um, in, in, in this paper, we don't have enough variation in TIPS to figure out they're a factor. At least there's, there's the signal-to-noise ratio is too low. Um, uh, what, what we did in that, that I.O. piece um, is we showed that uh, basically um, rolling coverage into an area reduced insurgent violence, and um, it did so quite substantially. So, if you, you know, cell phone coverage, you know, when you put in a cell phone tower, um, like if you put a tower here, you've got a cell that covers this area, a cell that covers this area, and a cell that covers this area. And then maybe you've got a tower that existed previously right here. So, when this tower goes in, this isn't new coverage, right? That's just like deeper coverage and this is all new coverage from that particular antenna. And so what we can show you is that when, in the 150 days after an antenna goes in, in the part that creates new coverage, violence goes down about 50% from the mean. Um, Well, ID attacks go down about 50% from the mean, compared to places covered by the same cell that already had coverage. So it's like this very, like, it's like in this part of the town, violence drops dramatically, and in that part of the town it doesn't for IED attacks. What happens with um, indirect fire attacks is really interesting. Um, Indirect fire attacks into the area go up. So the use of mortars and, like, RPGs fired on a ballistic trajectory and rockets, that goes up. And so what that suggests to us is the number of targets in the area, the things that the insurgents want to hit doesn't change, but the risk to operating in that area does. And that's consistent with the idea that making it safer for people to inform means that they're less willing to tolerate insurgent presence. Um. Thank you very much for sure. a very
0: interesting paper. Um, my question
1: is, if you have considered the effect of um, relative military capabilities on um, information flow, um, it might be the case that if the government is really really strong, then people might be likely to might be more likely to um, give tips to the government. So um, I was just curious whether you considered that fact. Yes. So, so in the. Um, in the results that I showed you, um, I, it, it would be really unlikely that that were driving the results because we're looking at these week-to-week changes and the number of forces in an area weren't changing that quickly. Like it wasn't like people were being shifted around month to month. It takes it takes like an incredible amount of stuff uh, of planning to move even like a company-sized unit, like 100, 120 people let alone a larger unit. And so um, you know, people would move, you know, one, maybe two, occasionally three times over the course of a one-year deployment, and not a lot, like, week to week. Um, uh, so, yeah, so, so what I think is, um, yeah, so I think where, where relative military capability um, might come in is, is actually, um, is when you get people flipping sides. So one of the things that happened in, in parts of Iraq and has happened historically in other conflicts is um, people that were fighting on either the rebel or the government side made a political decision at one point in time to change sides. And when they did that, they shifted both like the military capacity of the sides and they brought a tremendous amount of information with them. And so that could very quickly change the dynamics in an area.
0: Oh, what a surprise. I'm next on. So, um, Jake, I want to go back to your overarching theory. okay not that on the, the yep. slide. It's
1: please? the, yeah. um, like this one? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So I, I'm a little bit familiar with the you know sort of first wave of rationalist theories right. of counterinsurgency from the, uh, the Vietnam era. Right. I mean, both of these were bodies of deductive uh, theory, hearts and minds. Right. Had sort of a, a clear deductive logic, that right. the uh, coercive counterinsurgency right. um, as well, and uh, the, the the testing strategy seemed to, uh, in as much as it was tested at uh, at that period in time, was based on the deductive logic. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not what you're doing, though, is it?
1: So, so well, let,
0: let me let me just yeah. sort of sort of spin out. My, my impression, based on not deep familiarity with the larger body of work, right. which is what allows me to generalize about it, right. probably wrongly, is y- you have a mountain of empirical data. Um, but the organization of that data, at least in terms of what I read in the, the book and what I heard in the presentation, in terms of a you know a, a, a clear deductive theory other right. than you know a basic assumption of rationality at the individual level, I'm not sort of seeing. And I'm, I'm wondering, A, if that's uh, an unfair characterization of how mm-hmm. you got where you're at, but B, in terms of the, the last slide, the, uh, the policy implications, the beauty of the, the hearts and minds and the, uh, the coercive um, counterinsurgency bodies of theory is that you could state the implications based on them right. you know, in a pretty, pretty straightforward sense um, uh, of propositions. Uh, I'm not so sure, based on this, what I would take away. So if you were, if you were briefing this mm-hmm. for a policy audience, mm-hmm. you know, what are the, the bottom lines? Don't kill civilians. Uh, make it easy for uh, civilians to uh, uh, inform mm-hmm. uh, on uh, possible rebels mm-hmm. right. and give them goodies.
1: So, so, th- so those, are the, those are the big three. The, the goodies is slightly more nuanced. It's give them things that they don't benefit from if they don't cooperate. So it should be conditional. And, and give them where you have the adequate forces present to take advantage of the information that you get.
0: Okay, so what's the deductive logic of those arguments other than they seem to work?
1: Oh, so those all come out, those are all actually propositions that come out of a game theoretic representation of this logic.
0: And is the model a theory?
1: That is a like very deep, question in some way. I mean, for us, what the model did is it, it it let us say we had this basic intuition about how the interaction worked. And then what writing the model down did is it gave us um, some specific comparative statics that we could test. And it highlighted um, uh, certain things like, um, you know, why do you get informing um, so, so, so a very specific example of a thing that you could get wrong about the world if you didn't have the model, is you could think that um, uh, what you should see over the long run is that um, as uh, community, as politics shift against the government, the level of information flow should shift. And that's actually wrong. What should happen is as politics shift against the government, violence should go up, but you only get in this context information being shared if someone makes a mistake and the rate of mistakes isn't sensitive to where that threshold is and so where that's like useful from a an assessments perspective say is I shouldn't take a lack of change in information flow as evidence that I'm not that attitudes aren't moving right what I should be looking at is 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 like if information flow is steady and violence is going up, that's bad. If information flow is steady and violence is going down, that's good. So you get a number of things like that. Um, I think the yeah. So so the model is is a way to represent as much of the theory as we could fit in that as we could. Um, and, you know, and, and you're right about the, the bottom line for, for policy. It's, you know, it's really those, those are the big ones. Um, what's interesting is, is the, the reason for giving goodies, though, is very different. And that has huge policy implications. So if you're in the kind of traditional hearts and minds way, or the way at least it was interpreted coming out of the Vietnam War, what you want to do is give a lot and earn goodwill and build this thing we call legitimacy. And what that led to in a really practical way in Afghanistan was a policy of continuing to fund public service provision in areas regardless of whether or not they were cooperating with the government. Right? So teachers' salaries uh, were paid, doctors' salaries were paid, basic health units were supplied, whether or not uh, a district governor or provincial governor felt safe in a given uh, area. one effect of that is it meant that there was no incentive for cooperation for local political elites, because the resources that they were skimming off of were present regardless of what local politics were. This theory, kind of, if you represent it game theoretically or just kind of talk through it, says something very different, which is that um, spending on all that stuff is kind of irrelevant. And so if you look at like if we We recently did a big review of US aid spending in Afghanistan and and, um, and if you look at the small scale type stuff, that seems to have moved attitudes towards the government a little bit. Not so for large scale projects, but the large scale stuff, you know was the vast majority of the spending. And so you really had this like huge misallocation of taxpayer dollars um, to the tune. So in Iraq, I can, because the records were really good, we can pin down how much was kind of small scale and how much was big scale. And it's like between 10 and 12%, depending on how you count, on stuff that had a violence-reducing effect. And so if the goal of spending all the U.S. taxpayer dollars was to bring down violence locally so you could get to the opportunity for a peace deal, that was a big misallocation. Well, uh,
0: we'll have to cut back on the wine at dinner tonight given that misallocation. So, okay. Uh, but uh, uh, last but not least, Kerry.
1: Oh, and, and you dropped your knife. Oh, I did. Which hopefully you won't need. <laughs> yeah. Phrase, take a knife to a gunfight. I'm going <laughs> to yeah. scooch back here. Um,
2: I'll be brief uh, because we'll have dinner. Um, I, I wondered a couple of things. One kind of macro,
3: mm-hmm.
2: on, on, the, um, on the civilian casualties on the, the empirics there. Do you guys disagree? To the insurgent cause to link casualties between targeted killings and indiscriminate um, sort of collateral damage. Um, it seems to me like that's an important distinction mm-hmm. that people would make. Uh, and there's a difference between kind of a bomb in a marketplace versus killing. Um, mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so that's, that's the micro. Um, the more macro also has to do with this correlating the local victories and strategic success in in your discussion with mike i'm struck by you know we have the the hearts and minds logic from vietnam really is about building legitimacy in a government that's going to be governing for 20 30 Mm -hmm. 120 years right you're trying Mm -hmm. to build up a stable long-term government um whereas the the kind of research that like this is what works the next month Mm -hmm. Um, and so do you see a discrepancy there between the the immediate violence reduction versus the long-term legitimacy state building project that is trying to install democracy?
1: yeah so so that's a great question carrie so on the on the first one discriminant versus indiscriminate yeah we're absolutely what I'm showing you in the regressions is the, the those kind of accidents of combat um, the targeted killings we are actually controlling for as a separate so we break those out as a separate category um, the question about kind of this discrepancy between short and long term stability I think is a, is a really is a really interesting one, and there are there are a couple ways to think about it. Um, so w- one is, um, you know, one is what's the success record in assisting those transitions, right? You know, the, the kind of long-run transition. Um, and then the second is like, what's the historically what have the trajectories to the long-run transition been? And so I think the the success record of assisting those transitions is like super small. Um, I I'm not sure I'm not sure we actually have one where you go where you think about like the development of legitimacy as you're moving out of a violent equilibrium continues in kind of a clear path like you establish legitimacy at that point that serves you for the next 20 years. I think the the more the more realistic path is that um, and the one you've you've seen in in more places is you establish control and bring violence down and then over a number of years um, a a whole bunch of processes get you to the point where that resolution is stable and so there's a deterioration of relationships that people have that serve them well in producing violence. People get old and don't want to fight anymore. They accumulate families. There are uh, investments that pay off more when there's peace in terms of businesses and things like that grow much faster than the ones that pay off when things are violent. And so gradually over time, the return to violence looks like less and less attractive. And if I I think about historical cases where you've like made the transition to what seems like a stable nonviolent setting coming out of violence, it looks much more like that than like you build belief in the state early. Um, Because the other thing you see a lot of, particularly um, in Afghanistan, but also other places where you've tried to where outsiders have tried to support governments um, in in the interim is um, when you bring in a lot of resources to the government, they often get spent in ways that exacerbate local grievances, and the more resources that are brought in, the greater that exacerbation. Um, you know, the 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 if you talk to people at USAID um, about what they've done in various conflict affected places over the last decade. Um, there's like one case that comes up over and over again as a success story, and that's um, what OTI, the Office of Transition Initiatives, did in the, in the FATA, the Federally Administered Tribal Areas of Pakistan. And what OTI did in the FATA is they basically overcame a budget constraint at the FATA Secretariat to give the political agents, who are these totally undemocratic, externally appointed bureaucrats, resources to pay off tribes that were cooperative. And so what OTI did is, through a bunch of contract vehicles, is they supported hundreds of projects where the political agent was like, these guys are being cooperative, these guys aren't. You're going to get, you know, a new bridge over the river into your village. You're not. If you want to cooperate, we can talk about a bridge. And OTI provided basically the budget for that. And that's seen as, like, the one place. Like, there's, like, a strong consensus. That's the one place where... Non, um, nonviolent action by the U.S. government made the political situation better over the last decade, and the story and that's very much a story about getting these like little local deals struck. Um, and just to close the loop, what's happened in Pakistani politics over time is it's, it's gotten to the point where it's like unacceptable to say you shouldn't regularize the tribal areas and end the FCR in lots of elite um, circles in the rest of the country. Because most of the tribal areas have been like very peaceful for the last five or six years and so people view them as something that should be brought into the rest of the country so you're like moving towards a long-run political solution by getting those like local deals cemented in a way that's like totally not generating legitimacy in that big picture way.
0: Great and uh, on that happy note uh, please join me in uh, giving a warm. Round of applause for if you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash N-D-I-S-C forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag N-D underscore I-S-C. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under SampleSwap.